This episode is brought to you by Atomic Books. Atomic is an independent bookstore full of objects made of paper, vinyl, plastic, and various other actual materials at the edge of time. Specializing in literary comics, small press, art books, and great regional beer at 8 Bar in the back of the store. Come to 3620 Falls Road in Hamden or go to AtomicBooks.com. Atomic Books, literary finds for mutated minds. To cut forward a few years, I ended up um, working with Brian Eno when I was 23 and for many years. In fact, we still do occasionally. And one of the first things I asked him when it felt appropriate was, how did you do that? What, you know, who painstakingly matched every piano note on the improvisation to um, what Harold had played? And he said it wasn't that, it was processing. They were all treatments of the piano sound. And it was like a switch had flipped in my head. It was like, wait. And that something, it, it just changed the course of the way I wrote music. This is Essential Tremors. I'm Lee Gardner. I'm Matt Byers. The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives, or their lives in general. Although an accomplished musician since the 1990s, English electronic musician John Hopkins first came to widespread prominence in the early aughts when he began collaborating with Brian Eno. This partnership then led to a role as producer and musical contributor to Coldplay's Viva La Vida album, as well as touring internationally with the band for the next year. These two points in his biography only scratch the surface of his work, however, as he has released six studio albums and worked with a number of other esteemed artists as well. His newest record, Music for Psychedelic Therapy, was recently released by Domino Recording Company. The first song Hopkins chose as being formative for him was Lost in the Humming Air by Brian Eno and Harold Budd. Okay, so the first song I'd like to talk about is called Lost in the Humming Air, which is by Harold Budd and Brian Eno. And um, it was I, I was very... Um, it's difficult to choose one track from that album because essentially it's like... Um, I think it's 13 pieces of music, but they're essentially like 13 different colours or 13 different shades, or 13 different places almost. They're not really um, pieces of music in a traditional sense or how I think of them. And um, so... This was an incredibly influential album for me because of um, I, I first heard it when I, I think I was about 21 and um, I've been going through a difficult period in my life where I'd had chronic fatigue syndrome, which is one of those illnesses they don't really, they can't really explain, but it's very real and you don't 
you know you can't really do very much and um essentially it was a period in my life where i first learned to meditate and um i came across there's some like gaping holes in the music that i really should have been listening to for many years before that and one of them was in the in the area of ambient and in particular the stuff that brian eno was doing and um i i had all this time suddenly you know because i was just kind of like recovering from this illness and and um first one i discovered was uh, the apollo soundtracks the atmospheres um to accompany the Apollo moon landings and um, that set me off down this path of like all the stuff he'd done in the early 80s and then eventually through um, Thursday Afternoon which is another um, absolutely one of my other favourite Eno records I ended up on on The Pearl which is the album that this record is from and um, the whole thing is just so unusual to me it's like you've got a guy playing the piano clearly but then there's this stuff around the piano sound and I couldn't I didn't have the technical knowledge at that time to know how that was done. And um, it sounded to me like you had a piano and then you had some synth parts that were playing the same notes as the piano. And they were like really ethereal and incredibly magical. And But it was like this blend between the realism of the piano and something incredibly otherworldly. And I was just transfixed by it. I couldn't work out, like this was made in 1985. And I couldn't, I, you know, I know what was... I knew vaguely what was possible then, and I couldn't see how Brianino. I know how, uh, Daniel Lanois was involved as well, who was a big part of a lot of Eno's productions. But I just, you know, there was such a mystery to it because I just didn't know how you would, you know, I was imagining that Harold Budd would like improvise these sections, and then someone else would like play the MIDI of the exact same notes over it, and that would produce that sound. But anyway, to cut forward a few years, I ended up. Um, working with Brian Eno when I was 23 and for many years in fact we still do occasionally and one of the first things I asked him when it felt appropriate was how did you do that what you know who painstakingly matched every piano note on the improvisation to um, what Harold had played and he said it wasn't that it was processing they were all treatments of the piano sound and it was like a switch had flipped in my head it was like wait and that something it, it just changed the course of the way I wrote music forever because I suddenly started seeing processed sounds as instruments in their own right so really what what they were doing was taking the audio of the piano and processing it through lots of different effects units and you know even tied harmonizer was one of the main ones but essentially allowing the sound to kind of have a an, a glow around it and and all these extra textures and timbres and things that just you would never hear, never think would come from a piano, and that that just changed. When I started experimenting with that kind of thing, and um, then sometimes I would actually mute the piano that it had come from, and and that's my my albums are sort of full of that. Really, there's loads and loads of of piano sections that don't sound like piano because the original bit of recording has actually been taken out, and you're just left with that treated sound. So I, I think, like, you know, the way I'm talking about it, it sounds almost like a just a kind of a technical process but when you listen to that track in particular Lost in the Humming Air there's this magic to it that just could only come from something natural originally so it's this blending of natural with technology and I think that yeah like I said it kind of triggers something in my mind and the particular track has a kind of drone under it as well and I never got as far as asking him what that drone was but there's a kind of chord behind it and um i mean really the, the titles on that album are very beautiful this one is is my favorite title as well as um actual piece of music and it just 
it just feels like you're just kind of lost in this humming air. You're just like suspended in, a, in an absolute state of bliss, kind of somewhere above the earth on like a hot summer's day or late sunshine. You know, it's got all these colours and feelings attached to it that I find very powerful and um, very hypnotic as well. So, yeah, that's that's kind of why I'm choosing that. Are you still able to have that sense of wonder with music? I know that it's as you get more experienced with playing and producing and engineering and all those things, at least for me, I look sort of behind the curtain all the time of like, I think I know how they're doing mm. that. I think I know. I think, yeah, I think I can hear what's happening there uh, relatively easily. And so that can get in the way of just that sense of wonder. Do you ever have, are you able to access that yourself? Yeah, I think um, there's still infinite wonder really because sometimes the thing that will move me most will be just a voice and a guitar, you know, and there's no secrets there. There's just there's just the person. There's the soul of the person coming out through two simple means. And then it is different with electronic music, it's true, and I find that when I can really, really clearly hear that one particular sound is this effect that like comes with Ableton or something, then there isn't perhaps that much magic in it but you know I, it tends to, the things that I really love and I get deeply into it it's probably not a coincidence certainly within the world of electronic music that I often can't really tell how they're made and I I use multiple different methods to, to make every sound myself and I think it's like yeah certainly people will be able to tell in general how some things are made but it, I, I like to try and make it I like to try and just kind of work on it until it isn't in... I think it's quite a nice goal, really, to have something where it it does have a mystery to it and you can't quite pick apart how it was done, you know. It's the same with filmmaking, I would imagine. The second song Hopkins chose as essential to his formation as an artist was Dance of the Lumi by Osric Tentacles. So, um, the track I want to talk about next is, um, I would say, probably the most obscure of the three, and it's um, there's a, a British band called Osric Tentacles, who um, are, you know, I think possibly still going in some form or other, but around 1993, in my opinion, they were at their peak. Um, they made an album called Arborescence, and there's a song on it called Dance of the Lumi, and um, I... I it was an interesting thing my relationship with that band was quite mixed because I didn't particularly like the guitars I didn't particularly like the there was lots of huge Steve Vai style guitar solos and it was very very good playing and you know certainly um, had a certain uh, strength to it but you know lots of time signature changes lots of so this song actually stands out it's nothing like any of their other songs It's and it's got a kind of simple four to the floor kind of live drum kit rhythm behind it um, what I loved about that band was not the rock elements, but the the use of synths, the way that there was a kind of 
there was a yeah you're going to see common threads with all these tracks i've chosen but there was a certain i mean for me as a 14 15 year old when i first heard this um coincided with becoming um let's say interested in the effects of cannabis in conjunction with music and it seemed to me like the synths were actually impossible like they were alive that's how it felt they were so organic um these guys were creating a a place in their music but it wasn't just a place it was an inhabited place it was just alive with beings and my kind of my my dreaming kind of escapist teenage mind was so transfixed by that um and it turned out that what they were using was a lot of analog synthesis and a lot of wavetable synthesis and things which, um, I, I mean, they were sounds which I still think would be very hard to recreate now. There was a particular era where that band were making music like no one else, and um, it was, but it wasn't all elements and it wasn't always to my taste. But this particular track was a moment where, I mean, it, yeah, it's like truly psychedelic in that it, it really it's like another world really that that you never knew existed within your own mind and you can kind of freely explore um that's how it felt when i first heard it you know so that sounds like there's a direct correlation then which rarely occurs in these conversations between one of these songs and then what you've just released for example would that be a fair thing or are they are they stumbled on separately completely independently of each other it, obviously at different times but does the idea connect no, I think it's absolutely connected. And, um, you know, I, I look back at, at that era and the discovery, because like, I have some analog synths involved in what I make, and quite a lot, actually. And um, it was them that really got me into it. And I feel like this is a band that, you know, that it's it's got all the classic prog rock hallmarks of, like, you know, mystical imagery and, and kind of elven characters on the front and you know a funny name and all these things but actually there were moments in there which were just so beautiful and so strange and so like to me not knowing this i'd never heard of hawkwind or any of the bands you know or gong or any of the bands that preceded them um i just came across them because my brother like with with many things my brother had been playing in his room and i i went in it's like what is this you know you know when something just grabs you and I didn't know what arpeggiators were. And these things all just seemed like magic to me. The fact that you could sequence. I mean, I was always transfixed by sequenced sounds within music and going right back to, you know, I was weighing up whether to choose a Pet Shop Boys song because, you know, the first formative music for me was It's a Sin by the Pet Shop Boys. And, and you know, most of the stuff from that era of their career, I was obsessed by the, the sequenced nature of it. But I chose this instead because this is much more relevant to how I feel these days musically this is like it's that it's that that ineffable mystery that kind of awe that transportive that knowledge like deep in you that there's something transcendent you can access and uh yeah i mean i i, I also just really love the idea that through talking about it on this program people will go and listen to it i'd love to hear what people think of it really <laughs> uh the last person I interviewed for the show was Will Sargent, who's Echo and the Bunnymen, the guitarist. Oh, amazing. Yeah. yeah. And he talked about being 12 or 13 and then listening to um, Supper's Ready by uh, Genesis, that being their big, big thing. Again, very obviously Prague, but it's funny how it's like a similar thing. And then it moved into how, of course, when the band formed, when Echo formed and 
that was not cool to like Prague at all. And Prague still gets made yeah. fun of, certainly. But it's it's funny that you would have that same experience at roughly the same time. And and I remember being very into Yes at that age myself. Not saying that's the only age at which you can be into because I still love Yes. But it's it's uh, it, it. I guess if nothing else, there's a funny image of you know pimply 13-year-old boys listening to this stuff. Um, and it's very guy-ish in a lot of ways. I think it's just something male about Yes. It. I agree. You know, and like this is the music of like five men taking a lot of drugs and hanging out right. for a very long time in a house in Somerset. That is, that's the truth of it. But there's like, <laughs> I think the idea of, it's why it's nice to talk about it because for years, you know, my early years of, um, certainly in the years in which I was like trying to get critical acclaim and like my ego was keen for me to be seen a certain way. Um, I would never have mentioned this band, but I've got to this point at 42 releasing an album like this, which kind of quite is unashamedly, it's not prog rock at all, but it's unashamedly psychedelic and in it's in its intentions and, and how it sounds. And I think, um, it's quite important just to stop trying to look cool and just say, you know what, I love this prog rock band. I love this particular song. Like, there's not many other ones I would still go back to, but the actual, the title track from that record, Arborescence, is also really magical. Um, you know, it's it's of its time and it's very much uh, not for everyone, but there are moments in there that, you know, I think you could, if you follow what I've been doing for years, you, you'll hear some of it in there. And that's, at least for me, kind of important. It's fun getting old enough that you just stop giving a shit anymore. Or you're just like, <laughs> well, exactly. who cares? Like, it just doesn't matter. Exactly, yeah. I mean, the 20, being being in your 20s is so exhausting because it's so much about that stuff. And being a teenager oh. is, like, even even more ridiculous. Oh, yes. It's like, there is, nothing, there is nothing else but how you look to your yep. mates. Nothing else even exists, really, for some of that time. To the extent where I, the extent where I was actually, like, pretended to like... Guns and Roses, who I don't like. I mean, there's, they're a brilliant band, sure. No, they're not. But I never actually enjoyed it. And you know, I actually, <laughs> I hate them. <laughs> okay, they're not. I don't like the guy's voice. I never liked it, and yet I literally listened to it because that was what yep. was cool. Um, and so I was so happy when I found bands like was it Tentacles um, and people that were pointing in the, towards something which I, well, for me, you know, as a keyboard player, I was interested in electronic sound, and that happened not to be cool. It was all about. I did genuinely love the, some of the guitar bands that were around then, so Pearl Jam and Nirvana in Pearl Jam 10, I think, remains an extraordinary, dark and mysterious. Incredible that that was a huge mainstream album, really. So there was stuff that, you know, I could simultaneously look like I was cool and also enjoy, but there were many bands that I just pretended to like. So yeah, it was nice finding my own thing, I suppose, even if it was uh, rock, which is nothing wrong with that. Yeah, that's uh, that's funny. Well, I, this moment passed maybe ten minutes ago in the interview, but I, if you're gonna mention prog rock, then somebody has to say something along the lines of "and the little children Stonehenge <laughs> dance." Yes. So we'll go ahead and do that. <laughs> You're listening to Essential Tremors. After the break, we'll hear more about our guests' essential songs. The final song Hopkins chose as being crucial to him was Forever by Orbital.
So the third song, I, I really wanted to choose one that was in the world of dance music and um, a formative band for me were Orbital. Um, and there's a track called Forever, which is on um, their album Snivelization. This is one that, again, that my brother was just playing. And he, in fact, he'd been um, he'd been made a mixtape by one of his best friends at the time, and he didn't have a track listing. And this is this was one of the great things about the '90s pre-internet. It was just this mystery. Um, if you didn't know what something was called, and you, there was no way of finding out unless your mate happened to know. Um, he never found out what any of the tracks were, but we, we've since identified most of them because they've come up again. And there were things like there was like a, a early Aphex Twin selected ambient works. There was Plaid on there. There was Sea Feel. You know, mm. there was some Four AD mm. stuff. There was it was an amazing compilation. But it started with Forever by Orbital. Um, and you know, it wasn't. I think maybe it was like at least a year and a half after first falling in love with it that I actually found out what it was called. You know that idea, that whole concept is kind of ridiculous now, probably. But um, there was—I wouldn't change it. You know, there was some fun to that. Um, and it begins with this chord, and there's a speech that's I was actually reading up before talking to you to have some idea what. It's just a speech from a film, a sample from a film, and I don't—I never really particularly liked that element, but the synth stuff in there, it was like. Okay, so you you may even hear crossovers with the Osric Tentacle track I chose in that there's this this kind of arpeggiated, trance-inducing, um, melodic synth element, but it has this really beautiful... I mean, I guess it's drum machines. It probably This is probably 1995 or something, or 94 perhaps. Um, but it had this delicacy to it. It had this, like, it was danceable, but... And then it just had many, many layers of melody, and they all fit in with each other like a perfect kind of symmetrical jigsaw puzzle and really like unashamedly melodic yet danceable and I think um, it was a great like satisfying quality to those sounds they were kind of tangible almost like physical objects to me I think back then and I hear that song now and I'm like yeah it does still sound amazing it's interesting that you have a very a, a common thread through your new work through some of the things you've mentioned this synesthetic sort of uh experience with music the way you describe music is at times as physical objects almost or in a way that uh you know it is not just based on your auditory experience um do you feel that way consistently i mean i feel that way visually about music i see things as much as i hear them um mm. at least in my mind not so much like colors or things like that but i can picture i don't know some sort of abstract imagery that i picture how the sound is um is that how you consistently think of music or do you even are you even aware of how you think of music in that way yeah no it, it's uh, it's like um I, i've thought about it i mean it's, it's like a dimensional space in my head that's like or within my consciousness that's how i feel about it it's like bass is definitely towards the bottom and trebles are above and you know that it's a, it's a physical i suppose it's just like um i feel like i can walk around inside it almost and that you know if you kind of introduce psychedelic experiences on top of that it becomes you just entirely become part of this structure and so music is is somewhere between a place and a structure and the way that i experience it um I, it's a sort of an intense sensitivity towards it and I think this led to ultimately you know, me making what I make now because if it's a place then I want to make 
the place I want to spend time in. You know, that's mm-hmm. really the best way I can put it. Mm-hmm. I, that's so, yeah, I'm glad to, this is becoming a therapy session. I'm glad to hear that you experience it that way too. And you picture it in, in a dimension <laughs> because when I, again, I'm so unconscious of it that it's almost like I, I was realizing the other day, I don't know if I, so I assume everybody does this, but you picture days of the week, like the upcoming week. And I have a very specific visual that allows me to see what's happening. Right. I can see Friday mm-hmm. and then Saturday, Sunday. I assume mm-hmm. people do this. I don't know, but um, I've just become conscious of it. And it's the same thing when you mentioned that music, because when I do hear that, yes, I picture a room and not a literal room, but yeah. a, a space somewhere floating, maybe three feet in front of my head. And that it's, yes. you know, that kind of thing. That does sound kind of similar, but you just reminded me of something else, which is that um, different keys are associated with different colors and different moods. And I think someone asked me the other day um, if I have a favorite key, you know, and I, I was just thinking it depends. I mean, no is the answer, but there, and I was, then I was sort of retrospectively thinking, well, what are my main, what key are my main songs in, the songs that are important to me that I've made? And I was trying to look for patterns, and I I think it's really about colors to some degree and temperatures. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, like, I have a song called Sun Harmonics, which is, which came out in 2013, and it's just an example because that's in the key of G, and for me, G major is for some reason just the, the color of, sunshine and sun and summer and like late afternoons and the key of d major is kind of a deep golden yellow and then you know f was always a kind of blue gray with like shimmering bits of neon in it so that that is what guides the 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 mood of a track really and they would for me they would be so utterly different if they're in different keys they would be different colors they'd be different places um you know, was, uh, E, the key of E was always green. I don't know why. You know, and then not every, I mean, B was like a kind of dark, warm brown color. <laughs> it's really, but but more appealing than that sounds. It's, uh, that wasn't a great description, but yeah, well, that, so there's, um, yeah. That sounds like, no, I'm sorry, that that sounds like, uh, it does, it just sounds like you have, you're hardwired for synesthesia mm. uh, to a degree where you're, your your various senses are are experiencing things that usually just other senses experience so that's that's pretty fascinating um yeah well of course it, i hate to say it because it's a beautiful description i don't mean to let the air out of it but that begs yet another spinal tap <laughs> quote do you yeah. want to take it do you want to take it or do you want me to take it no no i, I need you to actually okay, okay. Not, yeah. no problem a minor oh it's the saddest of all the keys and remember he's playing and like oh what do you call this one let my love pump. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry. I thought you were gonna. I thought you were gonna come out with, you know, how much more black could this be? Oh, how be? much more black? The, the answer is it's none. None, none more, more black. black. <laughs> uh, that would be. That would have been a good one. We could probably do this all day, actually. Just make a yeah. special episode just based on this. This has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore. Look for and subscribe to all of WYPR's podcasts. 
For more information about Essential Tremors, go to EssentialPodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.